Good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So last week we had an opportunity to talk to you about something that was going on in this church, in this congregation. There was a level of sexual immorality that was happening in this church, and the church was indifferent. They did nothing about it. We talked about a rule that Paul laid down. He said that uh, there was a specific problem that was happening. This was such a flagrant sin that was happening. Not only were the people in the church aware of it, but the people in the community were aware of it, and this was impacting the witness for Christ. And, and Paul said, this act is wrong, but the underlying attitude of the church was indifference, spiritual indifference. They, they saw it every day, but they did nothing about it. And Paul gave them a procedure to follow. And the procedure was called church discipline. And in that procedure, what Paul said is that under the authority of Christ and for his glory, what the church was called to do was to draw a line with this man and to say to this man, your sin is not appropriate. Your sin is God reprehensible. Your sin is impacting this church. And because you've chosen to repent, not to repent, you must be removed. Removed from the assembly, and if you remember last week, that was, that was very difficult to deal with, that you're being removed from the fellowship of believers. And, and what was happening was this, that this man was in essence saying that I am going to do what I want, I really don't care what you say, and instead of that malignancy going through the church, what God says is that I want you to remove that malignancy from the church. Send him out into the world because he wants to live like the world. But there was a restorative piece to it, if you remember. The restorative piece is not that we're just sending him out into Satan's realm. We're doing that with the hope that he is going to bend his knee and come to faith or resemble the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. That any time we discipline as parents, the hope is that good behavior is going to come out of that. Remember I told you that Paul was acting like a father and he was admonishing his children. He was teaching his children. He was setting an example for his children. And at times we have to discipline our children and that's what Paul was doing. So the problem was clear. The procedure was clear. And then we gave you a reason. We talked about the reason. And what Paul did was he went back to something that was somewhat foreign to us. He went back to the Passover back in the Old Testament. And if you remember in the Old Testament, um, just as the Israelites are in Egypt in bondage, before God is going to let them out, he gave a series of plagues to Egypt. The final plague was going to be the death of the firstborn. But the night before that, what they were called to do was to take a Passover meal. They were to clean out leaven from their homes. Leaven was a form of yeast that was going to be mixed into their dough. They were supposed to rid their homes of all of this. Kind of like a yeast goes into a dough, it spreads out through the whole mix. He used that illustration to talk about sin, that if sin is not dealt with, it will spread throughout the whole mix. And what he had said to you is that you have a new identity. You need to clean out the old leaven. 
You need to continue. If you remember, continuing Christ, what had happened on that uh, Passover is that they would slit the throat of this lamb, spill its blood, and then put the blood over the doorpost. And if you remember the doorpost, and the death angel would pass over that home. And symbolically, that is exactly what we have in Christ, that the blood of Christ is there and God passes over us because of Christ. So we're to be cleansed from this sin. We're to continue in holiness and remember your identity in Christ. And then we're supposed to celebrate. And we talked about the fact that celebration, when you celebrate, it is so very hard to fall into sin when you celebrate Christ and worship him. When we come here and sing with one another and praise one another, praise with one another, there is such a very difficult place of going to a place where we're going to want to sin. We ended the chapter by talking about relationships. The relationships with the world and the relationships with the believers in Christ. And the relationships with the people in the world was this. We were called to not judge the world. We were called to proclaim the gospel and demonstrate the gospel. That we speak the gospel truth and we live out gospel proclamation. It is God who the world. We do not. But for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're called to proclaim the gospel as well. We're called to demonstrate the gospel. But there are times where we're called to hold each other accountable that we do things that are going to bring honor and glory to God. Now, on the heels of that, that after Paul has just laid that out in chapter 5, we get to chapter 6. That's where we'll be spending our time, Lord willing, today. Would you look here with me in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians? When one of you has a grievance against one another... Does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such a case, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why do you not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, today we are going to be talking about how to deal with conflicts within our church. 
within the congregation, within the faith. Father, conflict is rampant in our society. Conflict is rampant in our world. Conflict is rampant maybe even in our homes. Conflict can be rampant in churches. Lord, you have given us a model of how to have peace. Help us to hear this. Help us to be overwhelmed with the gospel. Help us to be overwhelmed with what your son has done for us. And help us to live and breathe that gospel out into a lost and dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'd like to look with you at a series of points that are here in chapter 6. And he begins with verse 1 and verses 4 through 6. Our shameful conflicts, our shameful conflicts. He starts here and he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of to the saints? So what was happening in Corinth was this. Corinth was full of immorality, so we heard that in chapter 5, but Corinth was also full of legal activity. That, that it was kind of like our society today. You turn on the TV and you watch court hearings. And you know some of us really enjoy watching these court uh, um, arguments that are happening as people are taking each other to court and complaining against each other. This is what was happening in this culture. This culture, they would watch people fighting one another in court. So what was happening in Corinth, the city has now invaded the church, that the immorality of the culture and then the legal attacks against one another in this culture was invading the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have grievances. These grievances are, are things that we all want. We all want justice. There's not a person in this room doesn't want justice. There isn't a person in this room that has not been harmed or hurt by others. And, and he was saying this, that, that as you go through a relationship, this side of heaven, you are going to have grievances with one another. That is not anything you're going to be able to run away from. But what Paul is recognizing that Christians are going to have conflict, even serious ones, but the scandal that Paul is struggling with here is this, that you are taking your grievances out of the church body and to the world. That's the problem. He says, does he dare go to court? Strong language in the Greek. It, and in essence, says, what in the world are you doing? How dare you? T- take family members and attack family members within the body and then go outside to attack another brother or sister. You can't do that. And these conflicts were happening because we were not handling our situations well. He says that you were taking them to the unrighteous. The unrighteous wasn't that the um, people were unjust in their righteous, in their dealings in the court system. It wasn't that there were evil judges. Some of the judges probably had some good and moral things that they were doing. That wasn't the issue. The issue was this that why are you taking your issues that you're struggling with in this body out to a world that doesn't even have the major issue dealt with? They've never even dealt with their relationship with Christ. 
And if they can't get their relationship with Christ right, their mind is not right. Their beliefs are not right. Their words are not right. Their actions are not going to be fulfilled. So you're going to a person who doesn't even have the greatest issue of life settled, their relationship with God. You're going to them and saying that you can't settle personal relationships within the church. That's a problem. And he says, why don't you go instead before the saints? You remember last week we talked about saints, that you all, if you're in Christ, you are set apart and you are holy. That God has placed his righteousness upon you. He has given you his word. He has given you everything that you need to settle these disputes. And then he's given you a body of believers. If you jump down to verse 4, he says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your what? Shame. Can it be that there's no one among you who is wise enough to settle Settle means to render a decision. That is, it it implies some level of arbitration, not litigation. Arbitration. Settle a dispute between the brothers, your church members, your family. So Paul begins this section by saying, you have some shameful conflicts in your church, and you're going to the wrong people to get help. But then Paul makes a shift. Did you see it in verse 2? Paul then goes from your shameful conflicts to your glorious destiny. He wants you to think about who you are and what your future looks like. Imagine this. He says, verse 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Paul, you just said in chapter 5, we don't judge. Yeah, this side of heaven we don't. That side of heaven, because we are united with Christ, we as believers will be in some way or another judging the world. And what Paul is saying is this, that if if God has so ordained that you are going to be part of the judgment of this world, can you not judge temporal matters that are happening within this community? Paul then even amps it up even further. He says this, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And then he amps it. Do you not know that you will also judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? Paul is saying that the shameful conflicts that you're having are not showing your glorious destiny. Your glorious destiny is that you've been set apart and you, as a believer, are going to be ruling above even angels. And we fight over the smallest things here on this earth. We have an identity crisis. We've forgotten who we are. We have forgotten that the gospel has transformed us. We have forgotten the gospel. You remember in Matthew chapter 18 where, where Peter is saying, you know, how often is it that I'm supposed to forgive a brother? And Peter said, um, you know, the Jewish law said three times. And Peter actually times it by two and added one. He says, what, up to seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Now, is Jesus literally saying you forgive a person 490 times and then 491, there you're done? No, that's not what he's saying. 
What he's saying is that because you have been forgiven an unlimited debt, you forgive in an unlimited way. You pour that grace out of your life. If you forget the gospel, you will attack one another. And Paul says it to your shame, your shameful conflicts, your glorious destiny, your utter failure, verse 7 and 8. He says, to have lawsuits at all within one another is already a defeat among you, which is interesting, a defeat. Now, now when we go to court, what we end up doing is this. In the legal system, one wins and the other, what? Loses, right? Isn't that what we have? I won. I lost. One lost. But what God is saying is this, that within the body of believers, you both lose, even if you won. See, when you take a trivial matter before the court, what you are doing is this. The court may say you've won, but the reality is that you've shamed Christ. You've hindered the gospel message out to the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are some times that we have to bring the legal system in. Don't misunderstand me. There are clear times where, let's say, if you're on the bad side of a divorce and your spouse wants to divorce you and you have no ability to say, I really want this marriage to stay, but this person doesn't want it marriage to stay, you will have to go to court. You know, if somebody abuses a child, we are legally obligated to call the authorities in and to use the authorities that the state has given us to protect. There are times that the court system is absolutely appropriate and right. That's not what Paul's getting at here, so don't misunderstand me. What he is saying is that these relational matters, because of the gospel, you should be able to work through these together. And, and the defeat is that you think you're winning, but you're actually disunifying us and distorting the gospel. So the defeat is there, but then the second element is where your utter failure is that you are defrauding one another. He says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Have you ever noticed that when you or find yourself in a conflict with somebody, and somebody has attacked you and hurt you, that because you get so focused on that attack, you start to attack and hurt others. That's called idolatry. Idolatry comes when we are focusing our lives on something other than Christ, and now I have been so wounded, and so now I wound, and I don't even realize it. And what Paul is saying is not only are you fallen to defeat, you're suffering, you're suffering and you think you're winning, but now you're defrauding other people. You're hurting and harming other people out of your own heart. And you've forgotten the gospel. And so what happens is this. He says it's to your utter failure. It will lead to a bitterness, resentment, pride. And what Paul argues is this, instead of the defeat and instead of defrauding, lay down your rights. He says, hear the gospel here. You can see it right here. Why not rather be wronged? What does that sound like? Why not rather be defrauded? 
See, we live in this self-centered culture, and this self-centered culture is, is so against, it rails against this counsel, it rails against this belief that I deserve my rights, right? And the belief here is this, peacemaking is more important than getting justice. Jesus Christ displayed that. He says, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, what do you do? Turn the other one also. Now, that is countercultural. That is radically countercultural. If somebody takes your shirt, give them your jacket as well. That is countercultural. But it's gospel. Because Jesus gave up everything for you to bring you into his family. And the only reason we are here on this earth is to display the blood of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ to a lost and dark world. And when I make horizontal issues ultimate issues, we're defeated. So, our shameful conflicts, our glorious destiny our utter failure, our worldly past. Verse 9. He begins by this piercing question. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What Paul's saying here is this. You're taking family members before the unrighteous. And these unrighteous people are people who have never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. They do not have the mind of Christ. They do not have the beliefs of Christ. They do not have the power of the Spirit. You're believing that they're going to be able to settle matters within the family when they can't settle matters between themselves and God. And so he is saying that Do you not know that those unrighteous people, unrepentant, worldly people, not struggling Christians, these are unrepentant, worldly people, will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Corinthians outside were worldly in their thinking, they were worldly in their behaviors, and it started to impact the church. And Paul then started to talk about their worldly past. He says, do you not do not be deceived that's really how satan works in our lives very honestly right back to the garden of eden he has had the same strategy he is like a used car salesman he uses the same strategy over and over and over again here's the strategy distract them deceive them and then you can get them to fall to defeat distract them from the truth from the gospel deceive them in their minds, and then they will fall to defeat. That's exactly what he did with Eve and Adam. That's exactly what he does with us today. And so Paul is saying, do not be deceived. And then he goes through a list of sins that were rampant in that culture. And as you heard me read that list before, you're probably saying, well, that sounds like us today, right? (laughs) Our culture today. The sexually immoral are people who are having sex outside of marriage. Any form of sex outside of marriage is sexually immoral. We don't hear that today. We don't. People are living together in sin. People are sleeping with people all over the place. They have so many partners they don't even know. 
But that is what is being told by our society is love and it's lust and it's sin. Idolaters, these are false religions, false gods. It breaks the first two commandments. You have another God before me. That God is saying that anything that you believe is going to secure you and satisfy you greater than Christ as an idol. You're an idolater. Then he says adulterers, those who practice unfaithfulness and cannot keep their marriage vows. Those who practice homosexuality, those who have exchanged sexual roles. And in our society today, this is what is being told to us, is that this is normal and natural. That people are created this way. It's not true. It's a choice. It is not the worst sin. Some Christians make it to be the worst sin. This list, on that list, it's, an, it's part of the list. But the reality is, is that when you exchange their, your true identity for who you are, and, and as you look to something other than who you are, you are going to get disintegrated within. You have no foundation. And now we've gone into things that I couldn't even imagine 20 or 30 or 40 years ago that have now become normal in our society. They're thieves, petty thieves, street crimes. They're greedy people, covetous. That's kind of like a capitalist society, isn't it? Greed. I can get more. Drunkards. When was the last time you heard the word drunkard before? No, it's alcoholism, right? Because actually, if you look at all of the list here, it's a disease, right? It's a condition. It's an illness. It's a sickness. It's not what the Bible says. See, if it's a condition or a sickness, I can't be healed from it. But if it is a choice that I make, I can, by the power of Christ, be free and forgiven. And so when we tell people you've got a disease, a condition, you hold them in bondage. And a program is the thing that's going to have to set them free. We have some wonderful programs that help people to be set free, but they, that program is founded on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is Christ who changes people's lives and transforms them. Revilers are those who are slanderers. Swindlers are those that are con artists. And Paul says that list, and it's not an exhaustive list, it's just a list of things that were happening in that society. That person will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I need to be honest with you. There are people in this room that have committed things on this list, right? So are are you saying to me that because I'm on this list, I won't inherit the kingdom of God? No, 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 no. It's the beauty of the gospel, the blood of Christ. You are forgiven and free. That's why this next line, I hope you underline it, double underline it, circle it, circle it. I want you to see this. And such were some of you. Were, not are. And such were some of you. Remember the gospel. 
See, your utter failure and your worldly past lead to this great hope, our great hope, our transformed life, our blessed life. You are different because of the gospel. There's a dramatic change that happens in your life when God invades your life and transforms you. And see, when he comes into your life, you can't be continuing to live like the world. You can't be continuing to think like the world or speak like the world or act like the world. You can be transformed and changed. Amazing. Amazing. And such were some of you. I have people that sit in my office week after week and it's like, is there any hope for change? And I say, yes, there is See, see, the psychological world out there can give you a bunch of prescriptions or a bunch of um, work to do, but they can't change the human heart. I will say this as well, that one of my struggles as a believing counselor, a biblical counselor, is that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will go to non-believing counselors for counsel. Now, he's talking about lawsuits here, going to unbelieving lawyers and judges. I'm going to encourage you, you really need to go to a believing counselor. Even the least among us is better than going to the world. But let's go back to here, gospel. Your salvation is a total transformation of your life. You are made new in Christ There's a new life. There's a new lifestyle. We are not perfect individuals, no, but we are transforming individuals. God is doing his recreative work in your life and through your life. Jesus said, and I make all things what? New, new. That's what he's doing. So and such were some of you. And then there's this word, but. It's so strong in the Greek so strong. It is, it is, in essence, mercy of mercies, grace of grace. It is, it is a radical contrast to where you were. This is who you were. This is who you are. And then each, he's going to give you three character qualities or blessings that have come out of standing under the blood of Christ These three things he's going to give you, and he puts it in the past tense. He uses the aorist tense, and the aorist tense is a verb that indicates that it is complete and decisive. So so when he is saying this about you, if you're a believer, he is saying this has been completed, and it is decisive. Here it is. But you were washed. In all likelihood, Paul is thinking back to the baptism. That that for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, soon afterwards they go into the waters of baptism. Their salvation is not dependent on baptism. Don't misunderstand me. There are some churches that teach that you have to be saved through baptism. That's not what Paul is teaching. Paul is teaching that your salvation, you're evangelized and you have now come to faith in Christ. Soon after that, you go into the waters of baptism. And he wants you to remember those when you went into the waters of baptism and came out and you were symbolizing to the world that I've been saved. I've been washed by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. I've been born again. I have a new life. I am completely different today. It pictures the cleansing and the washing of your salvation. You have been washed, you're forgiven. 
Then he says, you were sanctified. Once again, in the aorist tense, meaning that it's been completed and decisive. And he says, you were sanctified. Sanctified here means that you've been set apart as holy. That God looks at you in Christ as holy. You remember when Peter said, you're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a what? Holy nation. You're holy. Now, some of us have the stain of sin in our lives, and and we have the consequences that we're dealing with even today, and we may have consequences of our sin for, for the rest of our lives. But even in the midst of that, you were that, you are this, washed, sanctified, set apart by God for his purpose. Your guilt has been removed. You're clean. Not only have you been washed, not only have you been sanctified, but you were justified. Beautiful word. Luther said it's the hinge by which the door of the church opens or closes. Justification means not only have you been declared not guilty, but you have been declared righteous in his sight. That God took Christ's righteousness and applied it to you. And he took your sin and applied it to Christ. And this great exchange that has happened in your life, you stand together free, free, forgiven and free. And all of this has happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means it's by his work and what he did. He's provided salvation for us and by his spirit. The spirit is the one who imparts it, who applies it. So Paul is saying this, I want you to be distinctive, church. I want you to be different. I want you to be dissimilar to this world. I want you to be so clear and evident in your life that you're unlike what the world does. I want you to display a radical change of life. I want you to be altered by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I want you to be transformed. I want you to remember the beauty of the gospel. That, that that's who I was, but by God's grace, this is who I am. Remind yourself of the radical change. Remind yourself of the believing of the blessings. And then I want you to live out the implications of the gospel. It is literally impossible for any human being to sin against me as much as I've sinned against God. You remember when Peter had given that, um, you know, seven times seven? You remember the parable that followed it? There was a parable, and Jesus said, there is a man who apparently embezzled a lot of money from people, a lot of money from this country. He embezzled what we would have billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in that time. He'd never be able to pay it back. And he begged the king, please forgive me of this debt please. And the king was ready to throw him in prison, but the king says, no, I'm going to let you go. I'm not only going to let you go, I'm going to wipe out the debt. You're forgiven, you're free. Now this man goes out and does what? He finds somebody that owes him a hundred denarii. It's a lot of money. But it's not like the infinite number that he owed. Now he's holding this guy 
And he's saying, I can't believe you don't pay me up. And he throws that guy in jail. What's the king going to think when I let you off with billions and you're letting this guy, you can't tack in this guy over $10,000? It's a lot of money, but it's not comparable to what I've forgiven you for. And Jesus is using this illustration to say this. You have been forgiven such an immense amount if you're in Christ. Let that breathe out of you. Let that come through you. Demonstrate the gospel to a lost and dying world because this lost and dying world desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel. You're a child of the King. So, Father, we praise you and thank you. There are so many of us, Father, that um, hear this and talk about grievances, and it's like I just had a fight with my spouse or just had a fight with my kids just before I came to church. And there's so many grievances, Father. We, we hurt and harm one another. James says, what causes the fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Father, this side of heaven, we have conflicts, but I pray that you would help us to use these conflicts as an opportunity to display your grace to find our satisfaction in Christ and to be filled with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of our glorious destiny, that we're going to judge angels. And and Father, I pray that you would remind us of the utter failures of defeat and defraud. Remind us of the glorious hope of the gospel. This is who we were. This is who we are. Remind us of how much it costs to bring us that gospel the blood of your son. So today, Father, as he was willing to be defrauded, as he was willing to give up his rights, help us to be willing to do the same. For those that are here in this room that have never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so it's not that they were this, but they are those things today. They're caught in a cycle of life-dominating sins, They've never bent their knee to you. They hear your word, but they rebel against it. Lord, I pray today that you would open their eyes, open their hearts. I pray that maybe they would come down front and speak to one of the leaders here about what it means to be a believer. For those of us that are believers here, that have probably failed in applying some of these principles, remind us again of who we are. Remind us whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen.